Okay, try to pick up with basically where we left off last week, maybe review a little bit. Uh, I remind you that the overarching theme of this uh, letter is that the Christian life finds its sole source in Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things. And Paul wrote this letter in response to the fact that there were those coming into the church in Colossae who were telling the believers that they needed something else besides Christ in order to uh, successfully live their, their, their lives. And uh, again, we don't have any archaeological information on Colossae. We don't have uh, any, uh, any uh, real extra-biblical information on Colossae. So we have to do some guessing at <laughs> what some of the false teaching was uh, based on, on Paul's response uh, to it. Uh, we do uh, know that there seems to have been those who were trying to bring a lot of the Greek wisdom into uh, the church. There were those who were uh, trying to uh, use early forms of what later became Gnosticism in the church where they claimed to have this higher secret knowledge. Um, there were those, and this is what we were dealing with last week, and we'll pick up there this week, but uh, there were those who uh, were uh, trying to bring uh, a lot of the uh, Judaic pra practices into the church, and and um, especially uh, bring a lot, uh, some of the rules regarding the, the Mosaic law into the church, and saying, look, you know, we, you know... We're sa even though you're saved by grace, you need the law. You need the law to guide you, uh, to equip you. And Paul is, is arguing against all of this. And so last week, of course, we picked up with his dealings with the law. He dealt first of all with the issue of circumcision because there were those who were trying to bring uh, circumcision into uh, the early church and you know he said look you do not need physical circumcision because you have had true circumcision uh, circumcision uh, you know pictured and we spent time looking at uh, other passages that deal with this, Paul deals with it a good bit, uh, especially in Romans, that uh, circumcision was meant to be a, a sign of what was truly needed to be a part of the covenant people. And what was truly needed was faith like Abraham. It was not relying on the flesh. Uh, that's where the cutting off the flesh was to indicate that, you know, the true relationship wasn't a fleshly relationship. It was not looking to the flesh. And yet, what did Israel do in the centuries uh, to follow? The majority of the Jews relied on the flesh. 
They relied on their physical tie to Abraham rather than becoming men and women of faith like Abraham. And, you know, uh, while in the Old Testament provision was made for the Old Testament saint not to have to rely on the flesh, the flesh was not fully dealt with in the Old Testament. But Paul says, you know, the issue is that the flesh has been dealt with by Christ. We talked about this last week and we'll look at it more as uh, in future weeks. And that's why Jonelle was giving out that thing. But the old man, our fleshly nature, was nailed to the cross. And it is, continues to be, be seen as crucified. And we talked about the fact last week that all too often people do not understand that there is a difference in Scripture when it talks about something being crucified and when it talks about them being dead. And that's where many come up with the idea of one naturism. That the old man was crucified, so he's gone, he's dead. Said any of you who are married, ask your spouse whether that's true. Because they know that this guy is still around. And I, I said, you know, we believe that every word in the original scriptures were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there's a reason when he used the word crucified, and there's a reason when he used dead or died. And they are not interchangeable terms. And I pointed out, if you go back to uh, the passage dealing with Christ's crucifixion, you find that, you know, Christ and the two thieves were crucified. And in the hours that followed, you know, one of the thieves is hurling insults at Christ. Another one of the thieves gets saved. <laughs> All after they've been crucified. Crucifixion it was a place of judgment which ultimately resulted in death. But it wasn't an instantaneous death. I, I think there's a reason why God uh, chose crucifixion as the means by which Christ died. Because of all that the cross would be used to picture in, in subsequent years. You know, uh, as the scriptures were given. You know, there have been there were several attempts on Christ's life earlier. Once they wanted to throw him over a cliff, and a couple times they wanted to stone him. <clears throat> God did not allow him to die by those means because he wanted the cross. And people talk about, you know, that it was a very long way of dying. <clears throat> Although Christ died faster than most. Christ was on the cross six hours before he died. Many would hang on the cross for, could hang on the cross for days before they died. And so, uh, again, there's a reason for the cross. And the picture we have, and I talked about this last week, <coughs> excuse me, um, is there are certain things that are said to be crucified, there are certain things that are said to, to have died or be dead. 
when it comes to crucifixion, our old man is seen to be crucified. He's not dead. He's not gone. We're to view him as being judged by the cross. We're to view him in that perspective. And to view that, you know, if he's hanging on that cross, he has no authority in our lives. Person on the cross could could say all sorts of stuff, but he couldn't do anything. We're to view the old man in that way. The world is said to be crucified to us. The world's not dead. It ain't gone. The flesh said to be crucified. You know, so the cross is important. And understanding the cross becomes very important uh, as you move through the New Testament. Now, you know, again... Probably dump these pins all over the floor. But, uh, you know, when most people think of the cross, and I'll take the old man down for a minute. We aren't actually supposed to do that. We're supposed to leave him on the cross uh, and not be pulling him down all the time, but uh, do it here. You know, when most of us think of the cross, most believers, they think of it as where Christ died for them substitution and for many that is the extent of their view of the cross but Paul in particular emphasizes over and over again that we died with him we and this is known as identification and it will become crucial as we move forward through this letter for those of you who have been through uh, Miles Stanford's Green Letters, chapter 8 in that book, the whole chapter is the various testimonies of men and women that God has used in the past as they talk about how critical identification is. That without it, without an understanding of it, we never will experience what we have the, the uh, potential to experience as believers. We'll miss out on it. So Christ died for us. We died with him. In substitution, he identified with us and died in our stead. In identification, we are identified with him. And his death is credited as our death. Now, last week, as we looked at uh, the law, Paul talked about the fact that the, that, uh, the Lord took the law out of the way by nailing its requirements to the cross. Just like the, you know, in that day when somebody was crucified, the charges against them were nailed to the cross. And as we are, you know, you and I are identified with Christ, the charges against us, the, you know, the, the condemnation of the law was nailed to that cross. 
so that it can no longer condemn us. It's taken out of the way. Now as Paul moves forward, and we start in at chapter 2, verse 15 today, um, as Paul moves forward, he points out that in dealing with the law, in taking the law out of the way, God effectively disarmed principalities and powers. Verse 15 says, And when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now there's a lot of debate among commentators over this verse, particularly the identity of the principalities and powers, or some translations like the one I just read, uh, translated rulers and authorities. Uh, there are some who want to view them as good angels that somehow played a role in the giving of the law and now have been taken out of the way. Regarding that view, uh, the Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown commentary states, Alfred, Ellicott, and others translate the Greek uh, to accord with the translation of the same Greek seen in Colossians 3.9, stripping off from himself the principalities and powers, God put off from himself the angels, that is, their ministry, not employing them to be uh, promulgators of the gospel in the way that he had given the law by their disposition or ministry. Thus, Paul's argument against them grafting on Christianity Jewish observance along with angel worship is uh, that whatever part angels may be supposed to have had under the law now at an end God having put the legal dispensation itself away but the commentary goes on to write but the objection is that the context seems to refer to triumph over bad angels and F.F. F. Bruce agrees with that. He, he writes, as for the phrase triumphing over them, it has been argued that in Colossians 2.15, the principalities and powers are the heavenly hosts celebrating Christ's victory. But this seems to be incompatible with the context. It's more natural to view the principalities and powers here as defeated foes, driven in front of the triumphal chariot as involuntary and impotent witnesses to their conqueror's superior might. And I'd have to say I agree with F.F. F. Bruce and with Jameson uh, Fawcett and Brown's uh, conclusion that the context seems to indicate uh, defeated foes rather than good angels. So who are these defeated foes? Well, the terms translated principalities and powers or rulers and authorities are generally used with regards to two different groups in the New Testament. In passages such as Luke 12.11 and Luke 20.20 20 and Titus 3.11, I mean 3.1, they're used in, uh, these terms are used uh, with regards to religious and governing authorities here in this world. However, in Ephesians 3.10, they, uh, it, uh, it's you, these terms are used uh, very clearly in relationship to angelic powers. So, 
in, in Ephesians 1.21 and Colossians 2.10, they're used in relationship to both. <laughs> Just all ruling powers. And so how is Paul using it here? Well, back in verse 10, <coughs> these terms were used in the broad sense of all uh, powers over us, whether angelic or, or um, you know, uh, physical or religious. And I'd have a tendency to believe that if five verses back Paul used it in that way, he probably would stick with the same usage uh, in this passage. But clearly it only deals with those earthly and spiritual authorities who have acted in opposition to God. And really, you know, Christ, I mean, Satan's opposition to Christ um, involves an alliance of both these realms. An alliance of the spiritual and uh, the religious and governmental uh, uh, leadership. And so Paul here seems to be uh, saying that Christ there on the cross triumphed over them. Triumphed over these foes. And he he says that there on the cross, as the requirements of the law were nailed to the cross, that these defeated foes were disarmed by God. And so how did he accomplish this? Again, look at the context of the passage. In interpreting scripture, we always told the students, context is king. Uh, you can ignore context and you can make verses say all sorts of stuff. But you have to look at the context. And in the context, Paul has just said how Christ canceled out the certificate of, of debt consisting uh, of decrees against us. And now he seems to be indicating that in releasing us from the bondage to the law... Christ took away one of the greatest weapons the enemies of God ever had. One of the greatest weapons that they were able to use in their opposition to him. Now, you know, we've already seen, and we talked about this last week, that Paul, here in this letter, presents the law not as a friend but as a foe. But at the same time, Paul did not see the law as being evil. In fact, Paul states elsewhere that the law, the law was good. But the law did not accomplish its purpose by being our friend. The law accomplished its purpose by being our, our foe, our enemy. By revealing sin. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, Paul states, the power of sin is the law. He says what? The law empowers sin. Why? Because as soon as the law states what we shouldn't do or what we should do, sin takes hold of that. 
and the things we aren't supposed to do or that the law tells us not to do, we start struggling with wanting to do them. And the things that the law tells us we should do, we start struggling with not wanting to do them. So the law itself might be good, but sin grabs hold of it and uses it and it gives power to sin. In Romans 7, 8, Paul again argues that sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, for centuries... From the time of Moses forward, the Jews had clung to this belief that the law was their ticket to righteousness. And yet, for all that time, all the law did was give power to sin. It empowered sin. And that was for a good reason. So that man could be made increasingly aware of his need of a savior. Again, in scripture we find God uses our weaknesses to bring, him, bring us to Christ. Whether it was for our, our initial salvation... Or whether it's to come to see Christ as our source of the Christian life. It all comes as we see our weaknesses. And the law for centuries was geared towards showing man's weakness. Showing that the old Adamic life could not live by the law. And so, while the law was righteous, and Paul says elsewhere it is, or was, well, it still is. The law is never said to be done away with. We are just set free from it. But while the law itself was righteous, it was used by Satan to promote unrighteousness. And I'll tell you where this is very clearly seen is in the Pharisees during the life of Christ. Here was a group of men who knew the law. But they used the law in unrighteous ways. They twisted the law to achieve their selfish, unrighteous goals. They used the law to promote self-righteousness. And as you go through the life of Christ and you look at the Pharisees, you see how the enemy used the law. And in freeing the believer from the law, Paul says that God took away our enemy's cherished weapon. And so you stop and think about it. God had taken away this weapon, and yet there were those coming into the church promoting it, and in, in reality were saying, hand it back to the enemy. 
Give the enemy his weapon back. Give him the law to use against you. Paul tells us that he disarmed the enemy. And he did more than that. He made a public display of them having triumphed over them through him, that is, through Christ. And the picture Paul paints for us here would have been something very uh, well known to uh, his recipients in that day. When a general went off to war, if he was victorious, he would return home marching his conquered foes in front of him. You know, proclaiming his triumph. W.H. Griffith Thomas writes, Christ displayed these evil powers as a victor would exhibit captives or trophies. Not so much as to make an example of them as simply to proclaim his victory over them. And this he did boldly, noticeably, as opposed to something done in silence and stealth. In other words, Christ didn't just disarm his enemies. He's made his victory public over them. Again, that's seen not only on the cross, but in the resurrection. He comes forth in life, declaring what? I've been victorious. James I. Packer describes this as follows. In Colossians 2.15, Paul very vividly speaks of Christ as conquering Satan and his hosts for us by the cross and speaks of how he shook off or put off principalities and powers on the cross and made a show of them, triumphing openly over them in the manner of a Roman general on his triumphal procession coming through the city as the conqueror. To those who have the eyes to see, that cross of shame where Jesus hung dying was a triumphal procession where Jesus was leading the principalities and powers of evil captive. For their power over us depended on our being sinners and God using them as his executionary. And now the sin has been taken away. The foundation of Satan's dominion is gone and Satan is bound so far as the people of God are concerned. Now, because the law has been taken out of the way on the cross, principalities and powers have had their weapon taken away from them, and Christ has publicly declared his victory over them, Paul goes on to tell us that there is no reason why the Colossian believers should allow them and themselves to be brought back under that system. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to festival or new moon or Sabbath day. Things that are merely a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul's telling us, you know, since we are united with Christ, identification, and he is above every authority, and since God has taken the law out of the way 
nailing it to Christ's cross. And since the result is that the enemy has been disarmed and Christ's victory over them has been declared, why should believers allow themselves to be put back under that outdated system by people who have been rendered powerless as defeated foes? Now, Paul goes on to say, look, the regulations of the law, particularly a lot of the ceremonial regulations of the law, found their validity in foreshadowing the the work that Christ was going to do. But now that Christ has come and his work has been accomplished, there's no reason to cling to the shadow any longer. You know, for... And, you know, because of its purpose, much of the, especially the ceremonial side of the law, involved externals, dietary regulations, annual festivals, the Sabbath. These were intended to picture things that would become spiritual realities when Christ came. But with the completion of his redemptive work, the prophetic picture lost its value. The future things that they had pictured had arrived. I used to tell my students, you know, again, when Jonelle and I were dating and things, and especially when we were separated for the summer, you know, I had a picture of her. You know, I'd look at the picture. But I said, it'd be kind of absurd for me to sit with Jonelle and stare at her picture. You know, why would I need a picture if the real thing's there? Once you're back with the real thing, the real person you don't need. Maybe I shouldn't say thing. The real person. (laughs) You don't need the photo anymore. And that's kind of Paul's argument here. You know, there were aspects of the law that were pictures of something future that hadn't arrived yet. But once the real thing is there with us, why would we keep looking at the picture? And see, unfortunately, again... Throughout its history, uh, the nation of Israel didn't see the law and a lot of these ceremonial aspects of prophetic pictures. They saw them as a means of righteousness. And even more unfortunate was the fact that there were believers in the early church who saw you know, the require, these requirements as something that would add to their spirituality. <clears throat> They were, you know, duped into believing they needed to live by these regulations. And Paul's trying to give them an accurate understanding. And he goes on to warn them that allowing others to bring them back under the law amounted to permitting someone to defraud them of the prize that was rightfully theirs. 
Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So what's the prize that they were being defrauded of? Now, the New King James translates the passage, let no one treat, uh, cheat you of your reward. Uh, I don't really like that uh, translation um, because it leaves us with the impression that the Colossian believers were forfeiting something future by allowing themselves to be sucked under the law. And there's an aspect of that that's true, but there's more at stake here for them and for us than some future reward. Most modern translations speak of defrauding the believer of their prize and the prize apparently being something not merely out there in the future but something that we can experience now. And I believe Paul defines that prize for us in the next verse. When he speaks of the spiritual growth that results from holding fast to the headship of Christ. The prize of, of our salvation is that it entitles us to everything needed for our spiritual development. But the prize lay 100% in Christ. And when Believers allow themselves to be enticed to look anywhere else, no matter how good it might appear. When believers allow themselves to be enticed to look anywhere else for their spiritual development, they become cheated out of the prize that is theirs due to their position in Christ. These believers were being defrauded from their prize by being enticed to look to other things. Again, to the Greek wisdom, the Gnostic knowledge, the regulations of the law. And these things could not deliver. They were being enticed to place their confidence in self-effort. Looking to systems that could never deliver. Everything they were looking to appealed to this and this alone. Or for those on tape, I just pointed at the old man. Didn't have anything to do with our new life in Christ. See, the path they were being enticed to follow was one that kept them from seizing hold of and clinging to the one who could deliver the prize, which was Christ. Not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. So verse 19 tells us that the loss of the prize was the result of not seizing hold of Christ as our head. And Paul goes on to describe for us that Christ is not only the head of the church, but so much more. <clears throat> He's the one through which the whole body is supplied. 
He's the connective tissue that holds us together. And here, Christ is seen as providing three things critically needed by the church. And for us as believers, if there is to be a growth that comes from God... And in verse 19, I think Paul is making clear there's growth that doesn't come from God. And that we need to realize that there is growth that is not good. Especially within the church. Some growth is destructive. You know, growth within the human body is necessary for health and development. But the growth of a cancer within the human body is not a good thing. And within the church, proper growth is great, it's beneficial, it's needed. But growth that's brought about by the wrong means can be very destructive to the body of Christ. And what makes the difference between what's healthy and what's destructive? It's the role that Christ plays in it all. Paul indicates that God-given growth requires clinging to Christ in in three very significant ways. First, his headship. If, If the church, and even us as individuals, if we are not being guided by Christ as our head, any kind of growth that might result is not going to be of God. We need to embrace the headship of Christ. Secondly, the church must cling to Christ as its source of everything. Paul repeatedly presents Christ as our source. And if we start looking to other sources, and sadly today, uh, the church, by and large, often is looking to other sources to make it grow, to get its numbers up, is not looking to Christ. And they may be growing in size, but that doesn't mean that it's good growth, healthy growth. Thirdly, the church needs to cling to Christ as unifying force of the body. And I've said this before, there's a lot of talk of the need of unity in the body, and that's true. But there can be unity that's not pleasing to God. Our unity has got to be around Christ. Now, and we're about out of time, uh, but uh, I've got a couple minutes. Uh, while the reality of the law having been taken out of the way, the principalities and powers being disarmed, Christ having publicly declared his victory over them, it's a strong case for the Colossian believers not to allow themselves to be pulled back under that system. Paul cites yet one more significant reason. If you died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to its decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? which all refer to things destined to perish in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Paul says, why? Why, why, why? If you died with Christ, are you looking to these things of the world to guide you in your Christian life? And many believers today 
are looking to the world. And, you know, a lot of what's being presented under the guise, at times even of Christian counseling, is not really of Christ. A lot of it has been shaped by the world's view of things. And while most in, 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 in our churches today would not uh, see themselves going back under uh, the, uh, the Mosaic law, although some do still, many create their own law system. And any law system has to do with the old man. And I'm going to tell you something. He can't be fixed. I'll save you a lot of time. God didn't choose to fix him. Um, let me just do, say this real quick. You know, it's, you know, a lot of times Christians are praying, Lord, help me with this, help me with that. And they're getting upset at God because he won't fix this, won't fix that. I used to tell my students, it's like one of you driving an old clunker. That's breaking down all the time. And your, your parents buy you a brand new car. And you don't use it. You, you keep trying to drive the old clunker. And then you're getting mad because they won't help you fix it. And your parents want to say, we don't want to waste money fixing that. We bought you a new car. God is not going to waste his efforts fixing this, this old man. He has you a new life in Christ. And we're going to see more of that as we move forward through Colossians. But everything the world has to offer is always trying to fix that because they know nothing of the, of the new man. All they know is the old man. And so they're going to try to fix it. And it doesn't work. Most psychiatry and psychology and things is trying to fix the old man. That's why one of the highest suicide rates is in that field. Because after a while they despair knowing they can't fix it. They can define how it got there, but they can't fix it. God has an answer. Leave it hanging on the cross. Leave that old man on the cross and learn who you are in Christ and learn to live in that realm. We're out of time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you now for the new life we have in Christ. Lord, I thank you that as we move forward through Colossians, we're going to see more and more of it. And Lord, may we learn to put off the old. May we learn to put on the new. And Lord, may we reap the freedom and the victory that is ours in Christ. Not freedom we have independently from him. Not victory we have independently from him but freedom and victory we find in him. Lord, may he become our focus. And Lord, as we get to know him as our all in all, may he transform everything. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.